So I wanted to start with a poem. This is from John O'Donohoe. A little bit of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's long. And it's called For a New Beginning. And out of the way places of the heart, where your thoughts never think to wander, this beginning has been quietly forming, waiting until you were ready to emerge. Though your destination is not yet clear, you can trust the promise of this opening. Unfurl yourself into the grace of beginning that is one with your life's desire. Awaken your spirit to adventure, hold nothing back, learn to find ease and risk. Soon you will be home in a new rhythm for your soul senses the world that awaits you. So we are at another beginning, aren't we? Even as the retreat is ending. And we've come to the end of this week together, this amazingly long, short, full week, and a week of silence and stillness and sitting and walking and wind and fog and tears and struggle. And we've had in here in the evenings a lot of conversation about the equipment for the journey, the five faculties or strengths of faith and concentration and mindfulness and um, cha-cha-cha, faith, concentration, mindfulness. Wisdom. Do I have all five? These senior, these senior moments here. I was just, I, I, the thought went through as I started to say it, I should get you all to recite it, but you probably could, and maybe I should have. <laughs> so tomorrow we head out, we all head out, and um, most of us to go home and back to work and families and cities and automobiles and computers and cell phones. And as I wrote that, I thought, yikes, <laughs> yikes. What are you going to do, you know? And how, how do we stay open in that world? How do you have the, the open heart of the shy puppy that John talked about last night? You know, we probably feel a little puppyish as we go back there. And can you even begin to trust, to have faith in what you found here, what you begin to see here? So tonight, I'd like to explore some how we suffer in our daily lives and how we get caught in some of the stories that we inhabit and from whose windows, from the windows of those stories that we view the world and stories that can sometimes be very strong and sometimes be very destructive. You know, how do we live from that place of wisdom that John talked about last night and truth? So it's not going to be a practical, you know, how to sit every day and how to find a sitting group and all of that kind of thing. We can do some of that tomorrow. But I really wanted to convey to you, if I could, some of what has been most helpful to me and my practice in, in the world. So tonight, we're going to talk about Mary Grace and Burning Man. So many years ago now, probably about, let's see, I think he's 
headed to his 17th burn, so maybe 18 years ago. My husband and I, my husband Russell and I, were sitting in the office of our therapist. And we'd worked with this guy for a while, met most of our sessions together, but occasionally we'd have one separately, you know, just the therapist and Russell or just me. And the rule always was that anything that got said in those individual sessions got shared in the couple sessions. So things were kind of going along. There came this pause and he looked at Russell and he said, isn't there something you want to tell Mary? It's always a bad moment, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So Russell took a deep breath and he said, well, I think I want to go to Burning Man. This was in 1997, I think, or maybe earlier, I can't remember, early in the years of Burning Man. And I had no idea, what's Burning Man? I I really didn't know. And so as he began to describe it and had some books that had pictures of it, I began to get really, really scared. And the more I learned and the more I talked to people, the more frightened I became. Big arts festival in the desert of Nevada, in case any of you don't know about it. Lots of partying and not so much clothing and, you know, all the things that go with that. (laughs) This is back to the real world, kids. so. (laughs) So, you know, I just... I was so stuck. I was filled with all kinds of attachment. I didn't want him to go. Please don't go. If you really love me, don't go. And lots of aversion. You know, it's just terrible. It couldn't possibly be, there couldn't be anything good. And so, you know, there I was with the not knowing and all of the pain, and I was sticking in extra arrows right and left, you know, probably up to about 50, just like, John described last night. So this was a really big case of dukkha in the Buddhist world. And of course, you know, I was so righteous about it. I mean, how could, how could this possibly be okay? So I didn't even see that I was adding all those arrows. I thought I, I, thought I was right. <laughs> so everyone here, there's not a person in this room who has not suffered And certainly, as we've listened to you this week, we've heard a lot of your stories of all the heartbreak and the illness and the grief and the abuse and the anxiety and the fear, you know, all of the many, many things that visit us in our lives. And we know, you know, this is, I think John said this also last night, you know, this is the human condition. We have pain and and there are things that are just really tough about being human. It goes with the package. And then we create so much more suffering when we want things to be different from the way that they are. I remember many years ago, my friend Ajahn Amro was giving me some advice about a very difficult meeting that I had to go to. And after quite a long conversation, he said to me, I said, is there anything else, you, any other advice? And he said, yeah, he said, don't suffer. <laughs> Spare me, how can that possibly be true? You know, I, I had no, at that time, I couldn't even imagine how I could go to such a meeting and not suffer. But that is the instruction. And you know, people say, just let go, just let go, you know, just let go. 
but the mind sort of says, how, you know, how do I move from this tight, constricted place of suffering and how do I even begin to change when the heart and the mind are shut down and how can we possibly really permanently find um, wisdom and insight? Sometimes I like to remind myself that all of this confusion and lostness that comes so often for all of us that all of the great creation myths, all of them, begin with a time of darkness and chaos before any emergence of order. It's like the, the mythic understanding of the human condition is this is the way it is. This is how it works. Darkness and confusion come first. And most of us, for most of our journeys, have begun that way, haven't they? You know, we're lost and we're confused, we're in darkness. We want to make sense out of our own suffering and that of all the human beings. And even the Buddha, you know, the Buddha had this incredibly protected life as a young child and a young man. And then when he finally began to start his own journey, that first venture out into the village when he got his charioteer to take him into town. He encountered the suffering of humanity. He encountered someone who was old and someone who was sick and someone who was dead. And he was completely blown away because he'd been protected from that. Could this happen to me? Yeah, yeah, sickness, old age, and death. And then, you know, then the monk who came through who somehow walked through this with some degree of serenity. So how was that possible? And this was key to his awakening. You know, it's pretty clear that nothing would have changed if he hadn't encountered the suffering of people. And later he taught a lot about suffering, about its causes and its conditions, how it cycles around over and over again, how we tend to create the same story repeatedly, the same job, the same relationship, one more time. And he also taught that it's possible to break out of this and that the first step is often the same willingness to face our suffering directly. You know, in the teachings from the AA practice world, the 12-step practice world, there's an understanding that you have to come to some kind of bottom. It's different for different people, but you have to get there before you can turn. You know, it's not, not always the happiest teaching. And I think often when I'm talking about this of our friend Noah Levine, who um, started the whole Dharma punks practice movement and how he talks about how you know, there he was in juvenile hall, locked up. And he kind of went, oh, maybe I should do something differently. And he remembered some of the basic practice instructions that he'd heard from his father, who was a Dharma teacher. So this is often, you know, we hit this place of just enough pain to make us go, okay, something has to be different. And that's when we turn, isn't it? And we find help of some sort. We find a teacher or a therapist or we read a book or we listen to a tape or we attend a sitting group or a day long or maybe even a retreat. And it's that first place that faith and conviction begin to stir. You know, something must be better than this. Something. 
So we start looking in the darkness. And Wendell Berry, in a really nice poem, he says, to go in the dark with a light is to know light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. It's so hard to remember. You know, we like the light. We like to see things clearly. We like to understand. There's a story that I've always loved, and I frequently tell it when I talk about this kind of thing, about, you know, that great Sufi sage, Nasruddin. And um, Nasruddin lost his car keys, and he was searching all around his house and his property for his car keys, and um, he couldn't find them, and he couldn't find them, and he was really hanging out, you know, mostly out in front of the house under the street light, and looking and looking and looking, where are my car keys? And his friend said, you know, can I help you? Where do you think you lost them? And he said, well, last time I had them, I was in the backyard. And he said, well, how come you're out here in the front yard under the street light? And Nazardine said, well, because there's more light out here. <laughs> now, we do that, don't we? You know, we don't want to go where it's dark. And when we begin to look in the dark, when we push against the stream of our old habits, there is a profound turning often. And it's the place where we come to terms with our old suffering. And, and we begin to see that this place, this place of darkness, is in fact sacred. It's the first step on the path to liberation. So I'm hoping that some of you are sitting here going, yes, yippee, I did it. I just spent a week doing that, looking at all this suffering, so this probably means I'm on my way. And the answer is, yeah, it does, actually. You're all on your way. You wouldn't be here. You wouldn't have spent this week doing this if you hadn't actually begun this process. It's a very, very profound and wonderful point. So this is also a teaching that has been with me for actually most of my adult life. It's from the Asclepian Healing Mysteries. And it says, God sends the wound. God is the wound. God is wounded. God heals the wound. God sends the wound. God is the wound. God is wounded. And God heals the wound very much pointing to how important this deep seeking is. So as we begin to explore our woundedness, of course, what do you find? You find a lot of your old stories. You find stories about what you did, or what we should have done, or what we, uh, where we went, or where we should have gone, or who we were, or who we should have been. Lots and lots of stories. So a few years ago now, I went to my 50th high school reunion. And other than a few of the people that I connected with just in the months before that reunion, I hadn't seen any of these people for 50 years. So, you know, that means the last time we saw each other, we were 17 or 18 and, you know, young and looked a lot different from the way we looked now. And certainly as I got ready to go, 
I remembered all the stories I had about myself and and about the others and, you know, which ones were the brains and which ones were the jocks and which ones were the cheerleaders and the popular girls and who the sorority people were because my high school had sororities and fraternities and just, you know, remembering all the pain that went with all of those kinds of, you know, categories and identifications. So there I am, and it was a really nice reunion. We had a whole weekend of doing things together. And had they lived out the stories that I'd told about them? Hardly. You know, some of the jocks and the really bad students and the cheerleaders even had doctoral degrees and had had fabulously successful lives. And some of the yearbooks, you know, destined for great things, you know, that piece in the high school yearbook, they, yeah, I mean, they didn't seem to have done very much at all. So it was really interesting to meet them. I have no idea what they thought about me. In those days, my hair wasn't purple, so <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't shock them with that one. So, back to Burning Man. Russell did indeed go to the playa that year. And I was frantic. You know, there I was at home alone. I li- we lived in Santa Cruz at the time. And um, I was sure that he was going to find some, at least one naked woman, probably painted blue, <laughs> and possibly would have several of them I didn't know, or that he would get caught in some whirl of parties, or, you know, I had ideas that the place was, you know, overflowing with orgies, and I just was sure it was going to be awful. <laughs> and not only that, he continued to go back. Year after year after year. And every year I would go through this. I was sure that something awful was going to happen. And every now and then he would suggest that I try it. And I always said, no, no way. You know, that's not my thing. And every year we'd have the fight several times. You know, was he going to go again? Yes. Why are you going to go again? What do you get out of it? You know, am I not enough? What's, what's <laughs> happening here? Oh, it was so, so painful. The really the best story piece, though, was one year he went off and he'd been gone five or six days and all of a sudden I thought, he's going to come home with magenta hair. <laughs> and I just knew it. And at the same time, you know, I'd done this practice for a while at that point, I thought, that's a story. You know, it's not true. He's going to come home with magenta hair. It's not true. He is going to come home with me. I know it. I know it. So this went on for days and days. You know, I was trying to not believe the story, but I believed the story. So finally, it was the night that he was coming home, and he used to call me as he would crest the Sierras to let me know that he was on his way and he'd be home in a few hours. So the phone rings. I pick it up. You know, there he is. And I figure, okay, let's get this over with right now. You know, I'll, I'll ask. He'll say no, and that's the end of it. So I said, dear do you have magenta hair? And he said, yes. (laughs) I don't know how I knew, but it was. He said, but it will wash out. It will wash out. I was so locked. I was imprisoned by my story of who I was and who this situation, what this situation was. You know, I'm a meditator, I'm a spirit rock teacher, a bit on the quiet side, definitely too old for Burning Man, 
much too well-behaved, you know, relatively abstemious, not much of a party person. You know, the meditation world, you may have noticed it, it's not a lot like Burning Man here. It's not. Very quiet here. But, you know, he's a stubborn guy. and He was then, he is now. So he kept going year after year after year. And he created a really wonderful service project on the playa, working against sexual assault at the event. And year after year, he kept coming home. And he was always really happy to be home. And in fact, he improved. He got softer and more open. (laughs) And he even began to meditate a bit, which he hadn't been. And I was like, huh, how can I don't believe that this can't possibly be Burning Man. And he brought home, he's a good photographer, he brought home fabulous pictures of the art installations and and a lot of interesting stories. And then I began to find out that there were other people, there were other spirit rock teachers who had been to Burning Man. <laughs> and then I discovered that I teach with two, two Burning Man wannabes, you know, <laughs> one here and one here. And in fact, John today spent some time trying to figure out how he could get there this year <laughs> until Heather reminded him that he has another retreat to teach. So, <laughs> so after some time, my grip on the story, or its grip on me, I don't know which it was, lessened. And I began to look at the situation with clearer eyes. And I realized I was afraid. I was really scared. And that I was staying away because of my fear. I wouldn't fit in, it wasn't for me. I would be, I don't know what I would be, embarrassed or something. And I also realized I did not want to live my life based on fear. I had to go see for myself. I had to check it out. It's that thing that we tell you about the teachings. Test it for yourself. And I had to see whether my story was true or not. So I took a deep breath, and I stepped a bit out of the story, and I became a person who had a ticket to Burning Man. And then, in honor of Russell's hair, his magenta hair, I added a bit of purple to mine. And then I stepped out of the story a bit more, and we loaded up the car, and off we went. So Burning Man was the retreat, actually, of that summer, and it became my teacher. And it was a really ferocious teacher. And it was, was and is a teacher that gave me koans. You know what a koan is? A koan, you have koans in the Zen world, and they're often stories or sometimes questions that the rational mind cannot answer. And so you keep banging up against the question, what is the sound of one hand clapping is the one that a lot of people know. And, you know, (laughs) well, and play with it and just see it, it works on you. So Burning Man did that to me. The land is scary and awful and it's some of the hardest camping I've ever done and I've done a lot and it was exhausting and it was delightful and there were people that I just thought were appalling and there were people who were fabulously wonderful delightful people and in that first year we had an escape clause you know, anytime you want to leave, he said, I will take you to Reno and put you on the airplane. And I'd lined up somebody who would come and meet the airplane if he did that. 
And every morning about six o'clock, I'd wake up and I could hear the party still going on at six o'clock in the morning. I'm really. And I would think, oh, this is awful. I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm going home today. But it was cold and I didn't get up then. And so we'd wait a while and then we'd get up and then we'd be sitting. We always camp way out on the edge and the beautiful desert is right there and all the mountains. And we'd be sitting with our friends, drinking our coffee. And I would go, oh, well, this is pretty nice. Maybe I'll stay one more day. So day after day, one more day, one more day. And over and over again, you know, each time I thought I knew who I was or what I was doing or who they were or what they were doing, I found out it wasn't true. You know, that it kept pushing up against my definition of who I am in the world. And I wasn't just a sort of introverted, quiet meditation teacher, you know, that sort of person. It was utterly confusing. It was really confusing and utterly challenging. And the only peace I could find with it was to get it that it was a koan. When I, the day that I went, oh, this is a koan, was a great help to me because it was so unfigurable. You cannot think Burning Man. You just can't do it. So it really knocked me out of the story of who I am. So for one thing, I went back into the world as a woman with purple hair because it stuck around in my hair for a while, didn't wash out like his. And as I waited for it to go away, I discovered that it completely changed my interaction with the people around me. You know, apparently, if you're an older woman with purple hair, you are automatically friendly, and you're interesting, and you're available for conversation. (laughs) It's just true. And, you know, somebody said to me, well, it's like you're holding a puppy. And I said, no, 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 I'm not holding the puppy. I am the puppy. I am the puppy. I've had my pictures taken in grocery stores. I want to take your pictures so I can show my mom so maybe she'll do it. You know, that kind of thing. And I've had some astounding interactions with strangers. A guy in a grocery store in Texas, you know, a guy who looked not like somebody who would think much of a Buddhist teacher from California. And he came up to me and he said, that's so wonderful, I love it. And we had this nice conversation about my hair and another great interchange with a skycap in the Philadelphia airport who just walked up to me and threw his arms around me and then he stood there and laughed and we both laughed together. And I said, oh, it's the hair, isn't it? We didn't say anything else. Isn't that wonderful? I was so, ex- it was just such a marvelous thing. So I've kept it because it, created a different way of being in the world. What or who am I? What or who am I? Not the quiet self that I thought I knew, not the conventional identity of an older woman, you know, grandma, kind of wrinkled and frail. So I may be sidelined these days for being weird, but at least not just for being old, which happens to too many older women in our culture. We just become invisible. And what's really interesting right now, so I have a new story. My new story, or my new identity that I'm trying on, is I'm dancing with a hula group. Ah. So, you know, hula, hmm. And if I want to dance the traditional hula, which I kind of do, I have to stop coloring my hair. 
So how's that for a challenge? You know, well, I, you'll have to come next year and find out. You know. Will she do it or won't she do it? So it's another place where something is pushing up against what is now the everyday story. Interesting, huh? So remember the poem that I said the first night? I, I would love to live like a river flows, carried by the surprise of its own unfolding. You know? And so we get to watch. In our everyday life, you get to watch the unfolding of your being and to be surprised by it. Last night, John talked about the empty cart. We've been helping ourselves to lots of water from the empty cart back here. And the five aggregates that create the human experience of the aggregates of form and feeling and perception, mental formations and consciousness. And, you know, these, I think of these aggregates, they're like rocks in a stream, right? And when the rocks are in a particular formation, there's an eddy that forms, right? And so that's what we all are. We're all eddies around our aggregates or the aggregates that have come together to form what we call me, you know. So we last for a while, creates a sense of self with all the stories and the experiences and the cycles of suffering and the repeating patterns. But, you know, like everything else, an eddy can't hold. Sometimes in a stream, you know, something happens, there's an earthquake or a flood, and then the rocks are pushed into a different pattern, and the old pattern doesn't exist anymore. It will disband, and our aggregates disband. I'm 73 and a half. And so far I still go to Burning Man every year. I'm coming up on year six. I'm very clear that my body is aging, deteriorating. It is. My eyes aren't so good. I've got an ankle that doesn't have a whole lot of cartilage left in it. I'm dying on the vine, literally. You know, we all are. Just a little easier to see when you get to be my age. I know what lies ahead, you know, that there will come a point where the aggregates will disband and there will be a loss of this identity that calls itself Mary Grace. Sometimes that seems like a relief. I don't think I'd want to be Mary Grace for forever, be kind of boring after a while. I don't know who or what I am, really. I don't know what will happen at that point at which I die. You know, what happens next? Our Zen friends say, you know, what was my face before I was born? And we could just as easily ask, you know, what will my face be after I die? And it's kind of interesting and really okay not to know, you know. So this morning John mentioned when he was giving instructions, (coughs) my interest in astronomy and learning about the vastness of the cosmos and the billions of galaxies and the more billions of stars and One of the things I do as part of my daily practice is I go on my computer for the first time every day as I look at that wonderful site called the Astronomy Picture of the Day where there's always some astounding image, you know. And it reminds me that we know so very little. You know, I think often, you know, when I was born, we kind of, I guess we knew that we were part of the galaxy, but we didn't know that there were more, you know, we were hardly past the time when they figured out that, you know, the earth went around the sun and not the other way around. (laughs) So there's so much that we don't know and so many things that we 
mm, we, we see in a certain way and then we don't see them any other way. One of my favorite things to look at, they have it, I know, at the Exploratorium, is the MacArthur map of the world. You know the MacArthur map of the world? So in the MacArthur map of the world, the South Pole is at the top, right? And then you have Africa and South America and Central America and Asia, and then Europe and the United States and North America are all the way down at the bottom with the North Pole at the very bottom. It's a very interesting map because, of course, the first time I looked at it, I went, that's wrong. Well, it's not wrong. It's just another way of showing an approximation of what this planet is. And then I thought, you know, I think there's a very interesting way in which all of us who live on the top kind of think that's better. (laughs) And that's not so. You know, it has nothing to do with anything. That map could just as easily be on its side. You know, or angled. The world isn't any one particular direction in the universe, nor, for that matter, is the solar system. You know, this could be going this way instead of this way. So it was a teaching in the way in which we lock into certain ways of perceiving things, and then we don't see anything else. And, of course, you can go inward, too. You could consider what they now sometimes call the microbiome. You know, you... You think you are just you, one being. <laughs> you are a whole universe yourself, you know, of trillions of microorganisms having their lives. They're going about their business, doing their thing, living and dying and breeding, and they have the temerity to call themselves you, you know? Be- and, you know, you are, it said this in the Scientific American just recently, they said, you are more bacteria than you are you. So there you have it. And we know know, there's nothing really solid, right? We know that too, that everything made of moving particles, that the, the sense of solidity is just part of our perceptual process. What is going on here? What is going on here? We so much want an answer, and it is so hard to say, not knowing is like this. Not knowing. Now, some of you have come into this retreat, I know because I've heard your stories, trying to figure something out, trying to come to a decision, trying to see what happens next. And it's so hard to sit back and just not know for a while. So we've been doing that, haven't we? You've sat here in silence, and we've sat with the suffering and the joy and the stillness and the wandering mind. Have you figured everything out? (laughs) Probably not, I would imagine. In the Metta Sutta, there's a wonderful place where it says, um, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all attachment, is not born again into suffering. By not holding to fixed views, Clear heart, the pure-hearted one is not born again into suffering. Stories are fixed views. Stories are fixed views. Not holding on to them opens the heart. When we can ask, you know, what is this? 
who is this sitting in front of me? Even if the person sitting in front of you is your best beloved that you've been with for a gazillion years, who is this today? You know, or that place that Gil pointed to the other night when he said, wow, wow. You know, what is this? That's the place that can move us toward an ending of suffering. It's that place where when we get really still and really present, things change. You know, there's a lovely line from a Soseki poem. He says, when the mind is still, the floor where I sit is endless space. You know, it's not a floor anymore. It's different. Something's changed. It's also true that in this, all this vastness that's so beyond our ability to comprehend, we do see that there's something really unusual about the human experience, something that's often considered in many traditions to be sacred. And it's that place that gives us the ability to open, the ability to have wisdom, and that is um, aware presence. And we've found, and certainly you've found this week, that there's enormous power and strength in sitting still in the present moment, any present moment. You know, like Gil said earlier today, especially those moments when you realize you're suffering, you know, that's the place to really bring up the presence. And that um, just being here now, in this, I mean, the present moment is strange, right? You can't really put your finger on it because by the time you think you know the present moment, it's the past moment. So it's, it's very strange. It's kind of enormous and timeless. And when we do our best to be there, that's what moves us towards suffering. Ajahn Sumedho likes to say, now is the knowing. Now is the knowing. And again, this morning, I think it was this morning or last night, John talked about uh, Mahabua and, and Ajahn Chah also used to talk about the one who knows, you know. And have you noticed knowing is always in the present? It's always now, you know. Knowing is something we do in the present moment. So the Buddha teaches us to practice this aware presence in each moment. And you can do that anywhere. You don't have to be here. Being here is a good chance to learn how to do it, to get a bit of training. But the real work begins when you drive down that driveway tomorrow and go back to whatever you're going back to. To continue wherever you are, to give attention to breath and body and the flavor of the experience and to come back again and again. And the five faculties that we've been talking about all week can continue to, you know, pull that cart. Continue to pull the cart. And, you know, mindfulness and concentration and energy and faith and wisdom, all pulling us along day after day. It's not just a mental exercise. It's not something we're doing for no particular reason. For the millions who have practiced since the time of the Buddha, it has changed hearts and lives and minds. And they have, many, many, many people have experienced great release and great freedom. We can have awakening. We can. You can know something, at least, of what Nibbana is. 
You know, one of my favorite definitions of Nibbana is a moment where there is no greed, no hatred, and no delusion. Now, an entire life with no greed, no hatred, and delusion, that would be pretty amazing, and I imagine that's pretty hard to get to. But I think many of us know these little moments, these little moments of freedom and awakening. And at the very least, there's less greed and less hatred and less delusion. So you can begin to watch for those. Part of the art of practice is stringing them together so that they can happen more and more frequently. You know, right after the Buddha had his experience under the Bodhi tree, he was asked who he was. Who are you? And he said simply, I am awake. I am awake. (coughs) The human experience is not a mistake. It's not a problem. It's not something you're supposed to get rid of or get out of. It's something that we awaken to. It's something that we awaken to. It's something that we perceive differently when we begin to have that clarity of vision as we develop faith and wisdom and concentration and energy and mindfulness. But of course you have to be careful because with each new insight and with each retreat, with each little shift, there's some tendency to think, ha, now I've got it. You know, now I've got it. Now I know. Some time ago, there was a wonderful cartoon. I think it was in the Shambhala Sun, and it was a dad and his little son. And the dad is saying to the little boy, in my day, we didn't have Google. We had unanswered questions. So, you know, there are lots of unanswered questions. And we do, you know, as it's said in, I think, the Christian scriptures, we see through a glass darkly. You know, there's so many things we don't know. And that's a great learning. There was a Zen teacher, one of the early Zen teachers. That was his primary teaching. Don't know. Don't know. And Suzuki Roshi talks about how helpful it is to have the beginner's mind when you don't know, you know? And you've probably practiced this a bit during this retreat. Mostly it happens a lot, you know? We, you meet an experience and you meet it as though for the first time, oh my goodness, a banana. Wow. Wow, who knew that a banana would taste like that? You know, it's amazing. Or the bell. (coughs) Whoa. And you treasure, you know, when the bell rings and it reverberates and you hang with it. And each time it's different. It's different because you're letting yourself let go of some of your knowing. Or those birds, those turkeys. I mean, what was God thinking? Really? You know, and listening to all of that sound. It's so, so amazing. One of my favorite Zen stories, I seem to be on a Zen kick tonight, is the teaching, uh, a, a koan, and it's one of the most basic koans, about the Emperor Wu. And I'm not going to tell you the whole thing, but the Emperor Wu was, an, you know, he's the emperor of China, and around the 12th century, and he'd had some interesting experiences, and he was kind of on a spiritual path, but he was the emperor. And, you know, if you're the emperor, 
people mostly kind of tell you what, you what they think you want to hear. So he was having a hard time getting really solid teachings. So, you know, he'd go to a priest or a teacher and they'd say, well, you change your diet or go for more walks or something. But it wasn't, wasn't particularly helpful. So one day, this person who was supposed to be quite a great teacher showed up in his court and he was a very tall, they say red-haired, blue-eyed man from well north of China. And the emperor walked in and went, whoa, who is this? And this person had a great sense of presence about him. So the emperor went up to him and he said, well, said, um, you know, I'm the emperor and I do all these good things. I build hospitals and temples and, and I help the monks and the nuns. And what do you think about the merit? You know, am I earning any merit? Because that was the traditional understanding, was you earned merit. And um, Bodhidharma, because it was Bodhidharma, said, yeah, no merit. And the emperor Wu was like, whoa, you don't, you don't tell the emperor no merit. So he thought, this is interesting. This, you know, he, was, he, was, he was a very good student. And he realized, oh, there's something here. And he said, well, what about you know, reading all these sacred texts, you know, pages and pages, volumes and volumes? And Bodhidharma said, well, nothing special, vast emptiness. So the emperor at that point was completely blown away and he kind of got a little dizzy and the next thing when he looked up, Bodhidharma was gone and he never saw him again. And it was after he left that he found out who it was. And it changed his life. You know, he would be the emperor for a while and then he'd resign and he'd go off and live in a monastery and you know, chop vegetables and clean the toilets and do all of that. And then after a while the court would decide they needed to have him back and they'd ransom him, you know, pay the monastery and get him out and he'd come back and be the emperor for a while. So he, he went in and out and that was his practice. Well, what are all these talks? You know, you've been listening to talks all week. You know, nothing special, vast emptiness. So when we can let go of concretized knowing, then we can deepen into the astonishing mystery of things. What is this? What is this? Thomas Merton said, God is not somebody else. That's a pretty interesting statement. Somebody else said, God is the nothing that wants to become something. That sounds almost Buddhist, you know, if it weren't for the God world. In the end, you know, it's all mystery. It's all mystery. But, you know, you can, you can play with this. One of the things I like about the Emperor Wu story is you can try it on. So the next time you sit, like you know, tonight or during the chanting or tomorrow morning or any time, you, know, you can, oh, I didn't tell you the end. I didn't tell you the end. This is terrible today, the end. <laughs> so the end of the story is before the emperor got dizzy, the last question was, who are you standing there? And Bodhidharma said, I haven't got a clue. That's what really rocked the emperor. And that's the one you can try. Because when I first read this koan, read about it, I played with it. 
And it's a very interesting practice. You ask yourself the question, who are you sitting there? And then you take a deep breath and you say, don't know. I don't know. And, and try it. It really, mm, you know, in Hawaii we talk about chicken skin. It sends goosebumps up and down your back. You know, don't know. Don't know. In the end, it's all mysterious. We don't know. And oddly enough, when we let go of the knowing, of having to figure it out, it begins to feel like we're on firmer ground. Because, quite possibly, because it's true. And we suffer less. (coughs) One of my teachers was telling him that I sometimes felt like I wanted to bow to the mystery. And he said, don't bow to the mystery, be the mystery. You know. So if I could send you out, I think, with tomorrow with one thing, it would be this, to be available, be available to wake up at any time, in any circumstance, any circumstance. To be available not to know, to be available to find out that you're something different from what you thought you were. Maybe to be available to have purple or orange or green hair. To be available to find liberation in every moment. I don't think we arrive at an answer. We only wake up again and again and again. Wake up to our own mystery wake up to the mystery of the mind and the heart and to the mystery of the cosmos, to the mystery of being. And this is perhaps what is meant by wise view or one of the things that's meant by it. It's a short poem that says, the mystery of life is not a problem to be solved but a reality to be experienced. So let's breathe together for just a moment. Just sit where you are. This is part of the practice of, you do not have to have your special meditation posture. So this is now moving towards the real world. Stay wherever you are and be here. Breathe. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.